uh, as we open up to Matthew 21. Um, it's just a, a short intro for the next few weeks, uh, probably all the way up to the 20th. Um, we're going to be looking at uh, the remainder of chapter 21 and chapter 22, uh, which is another one of those series of encounters that Jesus has. Uh, we, we looked at one uh, earlier on in Matthew where he, he had these encounters with the Pharisees and they kept asking him questions and, and he kept answering those questions in a way that they didn't care for. Um, th- this series of encounters starts with the chief priests and the, the elders of the people and that's who we're going to be looking at this week. And then we, we move to just the Pharisees and, and some other folks. But there's a reason for these encounters. Remember the setting. Remember where we're at. We're in Jerusalem. This is the week before Jesus' crucifixion is the time frame that this is happening. Um, the, the, the crowd, the, the, the people that he's talking to, the chief priests, these are descendants of Aaron. These are people who have served in the temple for most of their adult lives. These are people who know the scriptures, the scribes, the elders. They're the ruling party in Jerusalem. The other thing that I want to point out is that this ties to the cursing of the fig tree that we looked at previously. Um, where Mark records the cursing of the fig tree, Mark splits the account into two different sections, right? The cleansing of the temple is in between those two sections. So you have the, the cursing of the fig tree, you have the cleansing of the temple, and you have Jesus talking about the disciples and their faith. There is a tie between cleansing the temple and cursing the fig tree that we said last week. And the, the, the whole process was an object lesson about the hypocrisy of God's people and how God's going to judge that. These next few passages are going to be talking about that same issue, that underlying idea that the, the hypocrisy going on within Jerusalem specifically, Judea a little bit more generally, and God's people overall is something that God is not pleased with. It's something he's going to judge. So, with all of that out of the way, I'm going to invite you all to stand for God's word this morning. Starting with verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. 
Father, I pray that we never, never let a desire for practicality keep us from speaking the truth. I pray that we never allow ourselves to be swayed by fear of the people, that we would never allow that to cause us to stand on the wrong side of your plan. Father, help us to be good students this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. So, if you look at the the course of events as Matthew has laid it out here, Jesus entered the city. All the people are going nuts. They're putting the palm leaves down on the road and Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to the, the son of David and all that kind of stuff, right? And then Jesus goes into the temple courtyard and loses his mind on the the people who were ripping off the worshipers, the people that were stealing from those who were really trying to worship. And then he goes to Bethany to spend the night. Bethany is the town, by the way, that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived in. So he goes to Bethany to spend the night. He returns in the morning. He's hungry. He sees the fig tree. It looks like it should have figs on it. He gets to the fig tree. It doesn't have any figs on it. He curses the fig tree. And then he talks to the disciples about their faith. Now he gets to the temple. He's probably just barely made it into the temple courtyard when people start flocking to him. So he begins teaching. And he's confronted by the chief priests and the elders of the people. This is probably a good part of the the religious ruling body called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a a group of priests and and rabbis and scholars who knew the scriptures very well, who helped to rule the religious life of Israel. And they came out of that intertestamental period about 150 to 200 years before Christ is when the Sanhedrin arose. So Jesus is is in the court of the Gentiles and he's teaching. And the reason I say he's probably in the court of the Gentiles, this was more of an open-air forum. Once you move from the court of the Gentiles into the court of the women, and then from the court of the women into the court of Israel, and then into the holy place, the crowd gets progressively smaller because the Gentiles can't go any further than the court of the Gentiles, and the women and children can't go any further than the court of the women, and the Jewish men who were not priests or Levites couldn't go any further than the court of Israel. The only people who go into the holy place were the priests, and the only people that could go into the most holy place were the high priest and only once a year. So the place where the teaching would be most effective was in the court of the Gentiles, right? That same courtyard where Jesus had flipped tables and chased out the sellers. Matthew doesn't tell us what Jesus is teaching. It just says he entered the temple and the chief priest and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. What was he teaching? Probably the same stuff he's been teaching all along. Probably the same message as the Sermon on the Mount back up in Galilee where he was teaching, this is what you've heard that the law says, this is what the law says, and here's what God means by it. Right? You've heard, don't commit adultery, it is written, don't murder, I'm going to tell you what that means. If you hate your brother without due cause, it's the same as murdering him in your heart. If you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, it's the same as committing adultery in your heart. 
So that's probably what he has been teaching. And then the priest and the elders approach. And they ask, whose authority are you teaching in? Who's given you the authority to come in and cleanse the courtyard? Who has given you the ability and the power and the authority to heal the blind and the lame? Now, I'll be honest, even their question shows a little bit of caution on the part of the chief priests and the elders. Because they asked the question, whose authority are you operating under? Perhaps it's possible that Jesus is operating under the authority of Pilate. Or maybe under the authority of one of the Roman rulers. Or maybe it's just possible that he's actually acting on God's authority. So when they approach with this question, you can tell they're trying to, they don't want to step on somebody's toes. The worst case, or maybe the the best case, is that Jesus is doing this on his own authority, in which case, what could they do to him? They could have him arrested, they could have him thrown in prison for disrupting their religious observance. Because he took all the money seller or money changers and chased out the people who were selling the pigeons. He was disrupting the peace of Jerusalem. If he was acting in Pilate or another Roman official's authority, then why wouldn't they want to get in his way or step on his toes? Well, because they didn't want Rome to come in and say, you know what, we're just going to shut down this whole temple thing. And in the worst case, if he was acting in God's authority, They didn't want to find themselves on the wrong end of, thus saith the Lord. Right? In the book of Acts, we looked at this here four or five years ago. When when we started in the book of Acts, when Peter and John healed the man in the temple, and they were taken before the Sanhedrin, right? There was that period where they were questioned, and the, the council went back together, and they said, look, Gamaliel said this, you know, the wise, learned teacher of Paul. He said, just in case this is actually a work of God, let's not stand in the way. Well, that's a smart thing for a religious leader to say, isn't it? Just in case God is really working, we'll just let things happen. So they asked Jesus, Whose authority are you operating under? Who said you could do this? Who gave you this ability? We've already seen a delegation of religious leaders accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power and authority of Satan. Right? And this was Jesus' harshest word of warning for the Pharisees. He said, look, you you can blaspheme against me, But you cannot blaspheme against the Holy Spirit because that is the sin that will not be forgiven. He didn't say they had done it, but he let them know they were getting really close. So I think that possibly here, 
The priests were aware of that conversation. So they tiptoed a little bit, a little bit softer around the idea that Jesus might be doing this under Satan's authority. They weren't accusing him, but they really were concerned about where his message came from. They were looking out for their flock. Right. So, looking at their question, I expect they were really hoping that Jesus was going to misstep in his answer and tell them that he was operating in his own authority. Now, here's here's the thing. If he had said that, he would have been right, and it would have been okay, except they didn't recognize his authority because they refused to recognize who he was. If he did say that he was doing this in his own authority, because his authority is is that of the Son of God, then they could have him taken away on account of blasphemy. Because he's just made himself out to be equal with God, which he was. (laughs) But they didn't acknowledge that. So they were really looking for Jesus to... Make a misstep. But instead of giving them an answer, Jesus gives them a non-answer. He says, I'll tell you what, I'll ask you a question. Depending on how you answer my question, I'll answer your question. How's that? And then he points at John the Baptist. Now, he didn't expect to get an answer from them because if he got an answer for them, Logically, if he got the right answer from them, then logically they would have had to admit who Jesus was. Right? He said, where did John get his authority from to call Israel to repent and be baptized? Was it a heavenly command or was it his own thought process? So if they said that it was a heavenly command then there's a problem. If they said it was his own idea, then there was a problem, and we'll get to that. It's easy for us, looking backwards at the New Testament, to know that John's baptism and his call for the nation of Israel to repent was a heavenly command. Scripture makes that pretty clear to us. The problem is, if we want to give any benefit of the doubt, to the chief priests and the elders and the Pharisees and the people who should have known, if we want to give them any benefit of the doubt, the earliest letters that make up the New Testament weren't written until at least 20 years after Jesus' ascension into heaven. They didn't have the New Testament. What they did have was their own eyes. What they did have was their own knowledge of what God's Word said. They should have known. John was a prophet. Later on, where it says that if we say his, his authority was of man, we're afraid of the crowd because they believe that he was a prophet. Why would the crowd believe he was a prophet? Because he was. All right, number one, he dressed the part. All right, he came out of the wilderness. He came out of the desert wearing 
a cloak made of camel hair that must have smelled amazing, right? And, and, and as I've grown this thing out, I can only begin to appreciate what his beard would have looked like since his diet was locusts and honey. Because honey is one of those foods that I have almost entirely given up on trying to eat. It doesn't matter if I were to put it into an eyedropper and put it directly into my mouth. When I'm done, I'm going to have honey all over the place. And if I were eating locusts along with it, I'd have bug legs and wings and all kinds of stuff there, and and then Steph would make me shave the beard off. (laughs) Actually, she'd have probably kicked me to the curb by the time I started eating bugs. But He looked like a prophet. He talked like a prophet. When he commanded Israel to come out and repent and be baptized, people came by the thousands because for 400 years there had been no prophetic word from God. Nothing. When God inspired Malachi to write his prophecy, it's like God just... You know what? I can't talk to you people right now. So he stopped. For 400 years. They had been through the conquering by the Greeks. They had been through the conquering by the the Ptolemaic Empire after Alexander. They had been through the conquering by the Seleucid Empire. They had been through the revolution by the Hasmonean Empire. Uh, rulers of Israel who ruled for about a 100 years before Rome came on the scene. They had been through that. And that whole time, nothing from God. And then John shows up, calling Israel to repent. And the people came out by the thousands. That's, John was a prophet. And his command to Israel was in that capacity. That's the reason that Jesus responded. Think about Jesus. John said repent. That's first command. What does repent mean? Turn away from your sin and turn back towards God. Right? That's universally what the word repent means. John commands Israel to repent. Jesus shows up at the water. Is it any wonder that John's response to Jesus was, stop? No. That's not how this works. You don't have anything to repent from. You should be baptizing me. I need to repent. And what was Jesus' response? It has to be this way. Why? Because Jesus was part of Israel. And the the command to repent was for the nation of Israel to repent. Yes, you repent for your individual sins, but the whole nation had gone off the rails. For 400 years, that's why God just said, no, I'm not talking to you. You're a bunch of hard-headed, hard-hearted, empty, religious, observant zealots who don't get it. I'm done. So Jesus came as part of that national repentance to be baptized. He responded to the command of God's prophet. And he was baptized. Maybe. Just maybe. 
that wasn't clear to the religious leaders of Israel. Because remember how they responded to John's command to repent and be baptized. You can't command Israel to be baptized. That's a right that only the Gentiles go through because they're wrong. They have to become Jewish. They get baptized and that cleanses them before they go through the rite of purification and the rite of circumcision to become Jews. Jews don't get baptized. Surprise. They were the sons of Abraham. What did they have to repent from? They had the law of God. What did they have to repent from? But I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say that by this point in time, we're about three years out from John's baptism. By this point in time, and John's dead. He's done been decapitated already. The religious leaders in Jerusalem probably understood that John was a prophet. That's why they pushed so hard against it. They didn't want to obey God. That's not in their makeup. That's not in our makeup. We don't want to obey God. We don't. Why do we have to be commanded not to commit adultery? Pop quiz, because it's our nature. Why do we have to be commanded not to murder? Because it's our nature. They knew that John was most likely a prophet sent in the spirit of Elijah to call the people of Israel to repent and turn their backs toward or turn back towards God. But it wasn't practical knowledge for them. Because if they did that, what did that mean? That meant that all of the authority that they had built up, all of the positional power that they had built up, all of their standing before the Roman government, their comfort, everything that they taught was false. This wasn't expedient for them. It wasn't pragmatic for them. It wasn't practical for them. And you can tell because of their discussion. If they admitted that John was a prophet sent from God, they even said this, if we say it was from heaven, he will say, Jesus will say to us, why didn't you believe? Do you notice that they don't ask themselves why they didn't believe? They just say, we can't admit that it was from heaven because then he's going to call us on the carpet for not obeying the command. Why would they be worried about that? Let me reiterate who these people were. They were the chief priests and the religious elders of the people. They were the people who were supposed to be leading Israel in the true worship of God. That would have been beyond humiliation for these men. They're all of their authority, all of their power, all of their prestige 
would have gone right out the window. On the other hand, if they answered Jesus in a way that would save their pride, and anybody had heard it, they would have been in jeopardy of a mob stringing them up outside the temple. Most of the people in Jerusalem knew that John was a prophet. That's why so many people responded. If it looks like a prophet and it sounds like a prophet and it smells and, and, and it's probably a prophet. They knew John was a prophet. Now they thought John was a prophet who was there to usher in their deliverance from Rome with a message of the coming Messiah who was going to come in and conquer and take over and, and reestablish God's kingdom. But they knew <coughs> John was a prophet. And if they came in, if the Sanhedrin admitted or said, we don't think that John's message was from God, they wouldn't live to see the sunset. The mob would have turned on them. So here we are stuck between the real answer and the damage that would have caused to their pride and the false answer and the damage that would have caused to their lives, what do we do? How do we answer? Like a five-year-old, we don't know. We don't know where John's authority came from. Well, there ain't but a couple of choices. Pick one. It's a 50-50. But they didn't want to. We don't know where John's authority was. They were lying. They most likely knew full well where John's authority came from. And so Jesus said, Neither will I answer you. If you don't know where John's authority came from, you aren't going to acknowledge where my authority came from. They had already exposed their willingness to deny God's prophet in order to save their own positions or maybe their own life. They were just as likely to ignore or deny Jesus' authority as well. There was certainly no way that they would confess that he was the son of God. They might have been willing to admit that he was a prophet. But even that was unlikely. Now I want to take this back to the cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree. This is the hypocrisy that Jesus was talking about. The religious leaders who are responsible for leading people in the worship of God, for leading people in holiness, were more in favor of the people that were profiteering from the worshipers than they were in favor of the Son of God ministering in the temple. They honored God with their words. They said all the right stuff. They wore all the right clothes. They served in the temple. 
they ministered in a way to God's people as priests. They performed the sacrifices. They made the offerings. They did all the right stuff. But their hearts were not turned towards God. Just like the fig tree, God doesn't want people who look the part, but who only worship externally. I've made this statement, it's been a while since I've said this, but this illustrates it. God is less concerned with the what we do than he is with the why we do. The what we do is important. But God wants the what you do to come out of the right why you do. I can come to church every time the doors are open. In fact, I do. (laughs) I'm the one who opens the doors. (laughs) I can sing in the choir. We don't have one. Um, And I don't sing that well. I can I can preach the message. I can do all of the right stuff. I can put my check in the offering plate. I can teach a Sunday school class. I can be an Awana leader. I can memorize scripture. I can do all the right stuff. Just like the priests and the elders of the people were doing the right stuff. But if I'm not doing it for the right reasons... It's no good. It means nothing. It doesn't mean a little something. It means nothing. What are the wrong reasons I can do those things? Well, let's see. I can do those things because I hope that that will make me acceptable to God. Is that a right reason to do things? No. I'm already acceptable to God because I'm in Christ. Nothing that I can do will make me more acceptable to God. Because when God looks at me, he sees the sacrifice of his son. I can do all of those things because I think I need to pay God back. Good luck with that. There is nothing I can do that will pay God back for what he's done for me not possible or I can do all of those things for the right reason I can do all of those things because number one God's commanded me to be in the process of building up the church and making disciples so I can do it out of obedience to what he says right I can do it out of gratitude for what he's done for me thankfulness to honor him and to worship him those are right reasons But here's part we need to worry about. And I don't mean worry as in anxiety worry. I mean the, the part that we need to be careful of. We can't do the right stuff for the right reason if we're not in the relationship with Christ in the first place. If we're not in Christ, none of what we do matters. 
So how does this passage apply to us today? Well, it's really, really easy. And now, now is the point where I'm going to invite everybody, if you're the kind of person who's sensitive about getting your toes stepped on, you might want to pick your feet up. Okay? It's really easy for people who've been part of the church for a long time to take on the same heart attitude as the chief priest and the elders. It's really easy for us to go through the motions of doing all the right stuff for the wrong reason. We know how to look religious. We know how to say the right things. We know how to not do the things that people consider to be out of scope with good Christian living. Right? And we're masters at compartmentalization. So so if we know that we have a weakness for speaking profanity, right, we'll compartmentalize and we just won't do it around our Christian people. Or we won't do it around people who know we're, we're Christian and they just don't think that that fits. So we just, we won't do it around them. But when we're in our car, when we're someplace safe, we'll take the filter off. We know how to look the part. Let me tell you, the chief priests, the elders of the people, they looked the part. Remember when I was talking about cleansing of the temple, I I told you that picture of the chief priests and the elders and the Levites that were wandering through the crowd, that 35-acre state fair with all the animals and all the noise and everything going on, and they're walking around in their white robes. All pompous, and pious, and dignified. They knew how to look the part. They knew how to speak the part. When people came to them and said, Rabbi, what does it mean to not work on the Sabbath? They had an answer. Please understand, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do the good things. And that we shouldn't stay away from the bad things. That's not my message. I'm saying we need to make sure, we need to have that check every now and then. Why are we doing what we're doing? Have I let my heart drift to where I'm only going through the motions and it's empty? It's just empty piety it's just putting on a show it's just checking a box am i just keeping rules am i being a hypocrite or is it genuine worship in response to god's grace and mercy to be perfectly honest there are some days where it's more the first than it is the last. There are some days where it's very easy to do what I'm supposed to do and my heart not be in it. That doesn't make me less of a Christian. In fact, I would say I'm in good company. We talked about it this morning where Paul wrote, 
I do the things I ain't supposed to and I don't do the things that I am. So as we finish this section, the next two passages that we're going to look at next week and probably the following week are a couple of parables that Jesus uses to clear this up, to illustrate how this looks and how this eventually is going to play out even in Jerusalem, even in His crucifixion. So right now I'm going to invite everybody to stand And when we leave today, when you go back to your houses, I want you to get out your Bibles, dust them off, okay? Dust them off, just in case they they got a little dusty since yesterday when you opened them up. (laughs) Right? Blow Blow the dirt off and read the next passage in Matthew 21. Read those two parables that are coming up. And see what Jesus has to say about how this looks. See if it makes things a little bit clearer for you, and we'll talk about them next week.